Good morning, I'm Tom, and uh, welcome to the Leewood campus. We're uh, very glad you are here today. Uh, in his most recent book, The Road to Character, a book I highly recommend to you, uh, New York Times columnist David Brooks makes the point that within each one of us, there is this deep longing. It is a longing, quote, not only to do good, but to be good. That is, he writes, to love intimately, to sacrifice self in the service of others, to live in obedience to some transcendent truth, and to have a cohesive and coherent inner soul. Well, I think David Brooks is spot on here. We all long to be a good person. And we not only all long to be a good person, let's face it, we expend lots of energy convincing ourselves and others that we are a good person. If someone came up to you and bluntly asked you this question, are you a good person? I'm willing to bet that you would respond, yeah, I'm a good person. I uh, have yet to hear anyone say, no, I'm a really bad person. We may admit we do some bad things now and then, right? But seldom are we willing to admit we are a bad person. We distance ourselves from our faults and our bad behavior, right? We allow ourselves to feel very good about how good we are. And when we compare ourselves to others, that often helps us in the good department. See, the longing for goodness, for human goodness, is played out over and over again, not only in the depths of our interior worlds, but also in the exterior worlds of friendships, in our work, in our daily lives. When a loved one dies, we don't say in a tribute how bad they were. We immediately go to how good they were. When we are asked to give a recommendation for a student scholarship or to get into a college or to get someone a job, a colleague, we don't usually write on the recommendation how bad they are. We describe in glowing terms often how good they are. And when we want to sort of be this matchmaker in a social relationship, we don't want to introduce a friend of ours to another friend and say, you know, they're a really bad person. They're a really bad person. No, we always say, they're a really good person. You've got to meet them. See, underlying this quest to be a good person is a crucial question. How do I really know if I'm a good person or not? And how good do you have to be to be a good person? In Jesus' most famous sermon, called the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus brilliantly weighs in on the question and quest of human goodness. Now, I don't know what you think about Jesus and where you are in your understanding of Jesus. Most in our culture think of Jesus as very loving. And I think our tendency is to be quick to sort of say, Jesus, uh, when it comes to goodness, he lowers the bar. Does he? Could it be that Jesus actually raises the bar? If you brought a Bible, I'd like you to turn with me to Matthew's Gospel, chapter 5. It's the first book in the New Testament. And I'd like us to walk back in the sandals of the first century this morning. So let's put on your imaginative hat. One of the challenges of Holy Scripture is the culture has changed and we have a great distance of time. So put on your sandals, walk through the dusty streets of Jerusalem with me. 
We know from Luke's gospel that as a boy, Jesus accompanied his devout Jewish family to Jerusalem every year during the Feast of Passover. Luke also tells us very specifically that at the age of 12, Jesus' intellectual brilliance was on full masterful display in front of Jerusalem's most intellectual and religious elite. Luke doesn't want us to miss what a stunning prodigy Jesus was at 12. And he uses the most flowering classic Greek words to describe the response of this prodigy. He says, all who heard him were dumbfounded at his understanding and answers. If we put this in our historical context, think historically of a young Mozart, a once and millennial kind of intellectual prodigy. In our context, imagine a 12-year-old, think of a 12-year-old, maybe you have something like that, who gains a perfect score in the ACT and SAT. Every Stanford, every Oxford, every Cambridge, every Harvard University would beat a trail to get this young prodigy a part of their intellectual endeavor. Red carpet. And clearly Jesus is extended that kind of attention by the intellectual elite of the day. Yet Luke tells us very specifically that Jesus does not stay and study in Jerusalem. He goes back to Galilee and works in his family's carpentry business. Now I doubt if anyone in Jerusalem who heard that young 12-year-old boy ever forgot him. Thoughts of the extraordinary young man must have lingered in the brightest minds of Jerusalem. And when you think about it, every subsequent Passover, it is very possible, no, highly likely, that Jesus entertained the brightest minds of Jerusalem in a deep conversation. He must have repeatedly amazed the religious establishment. And as we come to Matthew chapter 5, time has moved forward. Jesus is now around 30 years old. He has left his family carpentry business, and Jesus now assumes the vocation of an itinerant rabbi. And Matthew goes out of his way, if you've been a part of the series, to describe the magnetic attraction Jesus has to the crowds. On display to all the Galilean crowds is what the Jerusalem intelligentsia had already seen about Jesus years before. Now on display is Jesus, not only his extraordinary intellect, but his extraordinary power. Jesus simply cannot be hidden. Now Matthew also tells us, if you have your gospel open in chapter 5, don't miss this, that Jesus sits down. Now, this is not just some incidental observation. This is extremely important to Matthew. In the cultural context, when a rabbi sat down, he gave authoritative teaching. So as we enter into this text, it is sermon time. The most brilliant prodigy of Israel is speaking. 
and the awe of the crowd goes silent. Jesus is a brilliant rhetorician, and he addresses in his sermon two big questions. The first question we've already looked at, if you've been here in the series, is the question, what is the good or happy life? And Jesus answers this question in the Beatitudes, which is in verses 1 through 12. And we learn in the Beatitudes that Jesus turns our understanding of the happy life upside down. Upside down. And he points to himself as the happiest person. Now, as we come to verses 17 through 48, and continuing on to chapter 6, Rabbi Jesus will now address the second big question of the sermon. Got that? That's really important for the whole sermon. The question now that Jesus addresses, friends, is not just what is the good life, but who is a good person? And as with the Beatitudes, Jesus surprises us. He not only turns our world upside down, he turns human goodness inside out. And Jesus will say that a good person is not someone merely who looks good on the outside. It is a person who is remarkably good on the inside. And Jesus will say that a truly good person has a really, really good heart. Now, pressing into this question of who a good person is, I want you to notice with me in the text how Jesus' sermonic words follow this logical and literary progression. First, Jesus raises the bar of human goodness, verses 17 through 20. And then he goes straight to the human heart, verses 21 through 48. What Jesus does is he raises the bar of goodness and he goes straight to the human heart. Look at me at verses 17 and 18. Jesus says, do not think I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, it's a little teeny piece of a Hebrew letter, not even a Hebrew letter, and not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Now what is Jesus doing? Rabbi Jesus is affirming the inherent goodness of the Old Testament scripture, but he's doing much more. He aligns his life and teaching directly with it. And Jesus is also saying here, and do not miss this, that he himself holds the interpretive key to the whole Old Testament. And that if that is not enough, Rabbi Jesus is subtly saying here that the entire Old Testament points directly to him. John, the gospel writer John, explicitly makes this claim. In John's Gospel, chapter 5, verse 39, you can look more carefully at this. Jesus says to religious leaders, hey, you think you know the scriptures? The scriptures are all about me. Quote, it is they that bear witness of me. It wasn't that the Old Testament was merely a set of propositions. It was a signpost to a person. Now, the matter of the Old New Testament sometimes gets a bit confusing for us, and Jesus really helps us understand it here. Dallas Willard, philosopher and author, the late Dallas Willard, says this beautifully about this text. He says, the Old Testament was never meant to be the source of righteousness, of human goodness. It was the course of righteousness. 
like so many times, Dallas is so spot on. See, the Old Testament, when you read in the New, pointed out our need. It tutors us, Paul says. It guides us to the person who will make true human goodness possible. Now, can you imagine his listeners? They are stunned at what he is saying. And if that is not enough, what he is going to say next about the religious elites, the scribes and Pharisees, is a jaw-dropper. Notice verse 20. Jesus, notice the person, I, for I tell you, unless your righteousness or goodness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of God. Wow. That's not politically correct. It is important for us to grasp that the historical understanding of the scribes and Pharisees, they were amazing people. They were devout to God and to the Old Testament Scripture. You want to know how much? They loved the Old Testament with all their heart. They memorized all of it. They taught it. They obeyed it. These people that Jesus is talking about not only thought they were good, everyone around them thought they were the goodest. Can I use that bad English? They are poster boys for human goodness. If you had gone up to one of Jesus' listeners and said, what comes to your mind when you think of a really good person, nine out of ten, if not ten out of ten responses would have been these religious leaders. Jesus is really building tension and he's raising temperature. Think for me, think with me for a moment, the context in our context is not members of a progressive church who often do not take the Bible as authoritative. That is a serious matter indeed. But think here of members of more conservative, Bible-believing, and Bible-honoring churches. See, this is more in line with what Jesus is speaking about in the context. Do you feel the tension? Do you feel the shock and scandal? The hush of the crowd. See, in this matter of true goodness, Jesus is raising the bar big time. He's not lowering it. By doing so, Jesus' listeners are compelled to ask this question. If the scribes and Pharisees are not truly good people, if they are not good enough to what the Old Testament requires, who then is a good person? Now, once again, as we have said before in reading Matthew's gospel, look for the echoing of irony. Matthew interjects delicious irony here. He wants us to see that Jesus will answer this question about human goodness and how good you have to be throughout his entire sermon, keep that in mind, by pointing not merely to some ethical code, but he will point ultimately to the goodest person in the universe, to himself. Wow. Jesus will make the standard of goodness both harder than we can ever have believed and better than we could ever imagine. He raises the bar and goes straight to the heart. Now notice, Jesus does this by giving us the backdrop of the Ten Commandments in verses 21 through 48. The Ten Commandments, if you've studied the Old Testament, forbade certain external actions like murder, adultery, and lying. And Jesus reminds his listeners 
that wrong external actions, however bad in themselves, are symptomatic of a deeper matter. Both for the religious and the irreligious, Jesus says the heart of the matter is the matter of the heart. Alexander Solzhenitsyn, the brilliant Russian novelist and Nobel Prize winner, said it well in the Gulag Archipelago. He said, the line separating good and evil passes not through states nor between classes, nor between political parties either, but right through, notice, every human heart. My heart and your heart. Solzhenitsyn and Jesus both knew it. That the darkest black hole of the universe was the human heart. And that the human heart is ultimately what kills us. Now later on today, I would encourage you, maybe beg you in a humble way, to read carefully Jesus' brilliant words in verses 21 through 48. They have so much to say about your life and mine. And I want you to notice It will help you profoundly navigate life. But let me make just a few observations for time this morning that I trust will help you navigate your own study. First, you will notice in the text how Jesus repeated the phrase, you have heard it said, but I say to you. Do you notice that? It will appear all the way through this chapter. And what Jesus is doing, he's using a literary device to both reinforce his absolute authority as well as to distinguish his teaching from the current status quo teaching of the day. So keep that in mind. Secondly, Jesus paints a very different picture of what a truly good person is. And he repeatedly gives us facets of that from different lenses. A good person is not merely someone who is outwardly compliant to an ethical code, but one who is inwardly overflowing with a loving heart of affection and goodness. So if you follow this text, you'll notice that Jesus follows the loosely ordering of the Ten Commandments. He moves from outward action to inward affection. And this is what he does. Jesus says, it's not just murder, it's the heart of anger. And he says, it's not just adultery, It's the heart of lust. Jesus then says, it's not just lying, it's the heart of deception. It's not just retaliation that's the problem, it's the heart of revenge. And Jesus says, it's not just intolerance, it is the heart of hatred. So notice that as you read. A third, also notice, as you look at this text and keep this in mind throughout the sermon, and we're going to be examining for several weeks, is that instead of a lengthy ethical discourse on human goodness, what does Jesus do? He holds up a mirror to your heart and mine to point out our lack of true goodness. He goes straight to the heart. And Jesus pops the bubble of any kind of prideful, human self-righteousness or merit. Now, we're going to be covering more of these themes in our series on Matthew that Jesus talks about in this text. But let me highlight a matter we don't talk enough about. And Jesus speaks about it first for a good reason. And it's not sex. He'll go there later. 
I'll let Andrew cover that. <laughs> it's anger. It's anger. Look at verses 21 through 22. Jesus says, notice the frame, you have heard it said to those of old, you shall not murder and whoever murders will be liable to judgment, but I say to you, you hear that pattern? That everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the court. See the idea? And whoever even says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. Wow. Jesus' words get our attention, don't they? Notice the vivid rhetorical language. It makes the point that seething anger, once harbored and verbally expressed to another person, is enough to kindle the burning fires of hell itself to a holy God. Wow. So the listener of Jesus asks this question, because good communication forces us to ask questions. What's the question? Jesus, why is anger such a big deal? Why is anger so corrosive to the human heart, so destructive to human flourishing, so damaging to human relationships? And why is it that Jesus says an angry person is not a good person? Why? Doesn't the Bible say there are things to be angry about? Sure. Things like injustice, abuse, and oppression. But this is not what Jesus is talking about here. And let's face it, anger, and Jesus knows this, is a secondary emotion. It points to something much deeper. See, lurking behind our anger in our hearts are things like shame, loss, fear, and guilt we feel. Isn't that true? The anger shows up unannounced, unwelcomed, when we feel robbed of something or a loss of something, when we miss the promotion, when we didn't get the right score on the test, Anger shows up when we are wounded and feel hurt. Anger surfaces when we are fearful and scared and anxious about our lives or our health or money or friends or the world. See, what Jesus knew and what we must grasp is anger knows no age limits and has no statute of limitations. No matter how we dress it up, anger is like throwing a live grenade into a relationship whether that is a relationship with God or with others. And let's be transparent. Often, don't we hide behind our anger and even use our anger for manipulation? What anger does, think about the damage. It deflects the love and joy and peace our hearts long for, the intimacy our hearts long for with God and others. And instead of experiencing intimacy that our hearts so long for, the angry heart inevitably experiences bitter alienation and soul-numbing loneliness. The most lonely people I meet are, when you peel it back, are the most angry. Jesus knew this. Jesus goes out of his way to make the point in verses 23 through 26 that a truly good person, instead of harboring anger, will seek loving reconciliation. I want you to notice something. The first century hearers would have heard this perfectly. But we often miss the echoing. The very specific words Jesus uses here about anger jolts the memory of the original first murder in the Bible. Lurking just under the surface with his brilliant rhetoric and illusions, 
In verses 21 through 26, we hear the distant echoes of Genesis 4. It's right there. In Genesis 4, you know Cain and Abel bring an offering to God. Abel's offering is accepted by God, and Cain's offering is not accepted. It's not because he brings a bad offering. It's his heart is not right. And rather than repent before a holy God, what does Cain do? He sees with anger. The biblical Hebrew text goes, Cain was, he was angry. He uses extraordinary adverbs, and his face fell with contempt. God then in love asked Cain this question. In verse 6 that he asked us, the Lord said to Cain, why are you angry? And why is your face fallen? And the rest of the story is painful, isn't it? Cain takes out his anger toward God on his brother and kills his brother. If Jesus had asked the religious leaders, the scribes and Pharisees, if they had an anger problem, my sense is they would have said no. Yet Jesus is saying here in Matthew 5, at heart level, you are just like Cain and your heart's killing you. So if I were to ask you the question that I've asked myself this week, Tom, do you have an anger problem? My sense is that many around me would say no, and I would say no. But is that true? How many of us this week even have wrestled with words spoken in anger against others? And maybe in this room, and I'm not a prophet, you spoke harsh words of anger to your spouse or your family on the way to church this morning. Maybe you spoke words of anger to a friend, a coworker, fellow student. See, Jesus knows that anger harbored is a very corrosive thing. Bitterness and contempt for others is killing us and killing others in our world, figuratively and literally, often in the name of religion. I am struck in this political season with the political theater. I'm not going to say much about it because if I say a lot about it, it'd probably be misunderstood. But have you noticed the theme of anger? Expressions of anger across all parties, political views, angry voters, angry politicians, courting votes, using angry. And the question I have is simply, what would Jesus say about that? What does this say about the corrosiveness of our culture and our lack of civility and neighborly love, even as Christians? What does all this anger mean? Expressed and unexpressed for goodness and human flourishing. It's not incidental or accidental that Jesus' sermon moves from the corrosive reality of heartfelt anger to the life-giving reality of heartfelt love. Notice in verses 43 through 48, Jesus gets to the heart of the matter. He sets the bar really high. A truly good person loves as God loves, as God loves. Look at verse 48. You therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Wow. What did Jesus mean? 
Well, this text, like many texts, is taught wrong and out of context. But Jesus is not talking here about attaining some kind of meritorious ethical perfection. He is talking about a heart of growing love, which is the true indicator of a truly good person. The, word, the Greek word that's translated perfect here has the idea of the ultimate goal of a virtuous person. What Jesus is saying is that a truly good person is overflowing with a heart of love and is learning to love like God loves even those who hate that. In the message, Eugene Peterson captures Jesus' words well, which he often does. He says, in a word, what I'm saying is grow up. Your kingdom subjects now live like it. Live out your God-created identity. Live generously and graciously toward others the way God lives toward you. Now let's remember the question that Jesus is addressing is who is truly a good person? The current religious establishment of Jesus' day said a good person is one who demonstrates goodness on the outside. And Jesus has a radical different answer. Jesus insists that a truly good person is the person who is good on the inside, whose heart increasingly loves as God loves. Jesus is saying a really good person has a really good heart. And Jesus gives us a mirror in which to evaluate our hearts this morning. And so the question I asked that Jesus wanted us to ask in his beautiful rhetoric is not looking at our neighbor or our spouse or our children or our grandchildren or our fellow workers, but at our own self. And the question Jesus wants us to ask ourselves, are we a good person? Are we a good person? Do you know that in the Bible, Old and New Testament, the word translate heart is translated almost a thousand times? Jesus knew that goodness is first and foremost a matter of the human heart. The heart's that immaterial part of us, the core of our personality, our thoughts, emotions, and our will. And this is why the Proverbs writer says, of all things, Proverbs 4.23, out of love and wisdom, he says, guard your heart, watch over your heart with all diligence, for from it flows the springs of life. So will you watch over your heart with me this morning? Let me ask two questions that you might want to take with you as you go. Because most of this requires more thought and reflection than just two minutes. First, what is the true condition of my heart? What is my heart true condition? Most of us who have lived a while have felt the excruciating pain of being deceived and betrayed by others. Right? Maybe it's a friend, a colleague. But the most perilous deception of all doesn't come from others, as painful as it may be. The most perilous deception in your life and mine is self-deception. And Jeremiah 17, 9 cuts through it all. It's the heart is deceitful above all things and is desperately sick. Who can understand it? So what are your thoughts telling you? What are your affections telling you? Jesus reminds us in Mark chapter 7 that evil emerges from our heart. And Jesus is saying, folks, it's your heart that's killing you. Jesus sees your heart for what it is to you. And the question is, how do we get a good heart? 
And the heart of the matter is that we need a new heart. And the gospel writer John tells us of an evening when the most brilliant, prestigious, and devout Pharisee of the first century, Nicodemus, comes to pay Jesus a visit. You better believe Nicodemus knew who Jesus was. He'd heard him before. Nicodemus and Jesus get in this deep conversation, and Jesus looks at a stunned Nicodemus and tells him he needs to experience a new birth, to be born again, to get a new heart. He looks at religious Nicodemus and says, the heart, your heart's killing you. You need a new heart, and only God can do that. And what does Jesus teach? True goodness is not something you or I can make happen. It's something God makes happen in us. Jesus not only exposes the darkness of your heart and my heart, he pays the ultimate price on a cross so that we can receive forgiveness of sins and be given a new heart filled with love. The Apostle Paul wants a devout Pharisee. He makes the point that while the Old Testament could not make a person truly good, Jesus can. Listen to what he says in Romans chapter 8. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemns sin in the flesh, notice, in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to our fleshly ways but according to the Holy Spirit. So what is your heart condition this morning? What is mine? Will you embrace the gospel and receive a new heart that comes with it? Notice in the sermon and the ones that are to come that Jesus reframes the primary paradigm of God in the Jewish first century context. Do you see it? Jesus repeatedly speaks of God as our loving father and in his parable, often referred to as the parable of the prodigal sons, Jesus paints a picture of God as our loving father who eagerly waits for us, his lost sons and daughters, to return home to his loving, nail-scarred arms. The Father who lavishes us with forgiveness and unconditional love welcomes you and me back to the family and gives us a new heart. With loving and nail-scarred hands, our Heavenly Father, God the Son, the Holy Spirit, waits for you and me with the most extraordinary divine love and sacrifice to come home in repentance and trust in Him. What is the condition of your heart? Second question is, how am I nurturing heart health? We not only need a new heart, and if you're a Christian and have trusted Christ as your Savior, you have a new heart, but you need to cultivate a healthy heart. When we think of heart health in the physical realm, we think of two things, right? Regular exercise and a good diet. That's true in the spiritual realm. Maintaining regular spiritual exercises and keeping a good spiritual diet are crucial. Jesus was the perfect embodiment of the truly good person with the truly good heart, and Jesus engaged in the practices, or we might call them the spiritual disciplines, that nurtured his healthy heart. And he invites you and me, as his apprentices, to learn from him and embrace these practices. Jesus practiced good heart health with a regular diet of solitude, prayer, study, fasting, and service. And he invites us to do the same. Christ's community, we often refer to these basic heart exercises. 
as a spiritual diet that nurtures a healthy soul. And we do it often in the words, five smooth stones. And I want to encourage you, if you would want to follow up more with this or in your community group, some of you are going through the yoke curriculum, the five smooth stones, there's some books that are complimentary in the back that highlight more of what this looks like. If you've not read it, I encourage you to do that. It would be a great application to this morning's message. So how are you embracing spiritual disciplines in your life? There are two heart killers of our time that I'm most concerned about for me and for you. One is a worried spirit and a hurried spirit. Later on in Jesus' sermon, he will address the worried spirit. But let me remind all of us of the hurried spirit and it's killing us in a 24-7 nanosecond world. Many of us are going to have to be much more diligent, even making major life changes to address the frenetic, hurried spirit in overscheduled lives that are killing us. Jesus says, your heart's killing me. So where is your heart this morning? Jesus actually raises the bar of human goodness instead of lowering it. Because Jesus knows that a truly good person has a really, really good heart. Let's pray. Holy Spirit, speak into those murky places of my heart and our hearts as we come to you. Create us in us a clean heart and help us to watch over our murky hearts with all diligence. We submit you.